Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Do we really know what happened? The brother did it. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. We're both into like true crimes. Uh, deathy murdery thing. Yeah, maybe that should be the title. Uh, <laughs> deathy murdery thing. Could be that. Could be something not that, because that sucks. That's going to be our theme song. It'll be just a that. silent recording of land out of tune every time. That's good. This is mystery murdery thingy. Are guess, we starting now? Yeah, I guess we can start now. <laughs> um, hi. Hey. Hey. Hi. What's up? How are you? Um, I'm how's, good. How are how's you? How's your day going? You know, it really just started. Yeah. <laughs> you went to class. I did go to class. Yeah. We're, we're finally actually getting to recording this at like... 130 or you something. Know, they don't need to know our procrastination. That's habits. okay. They don't need to. It's you fine. Know. It's fine. It's still Wednesday. This will get out on Wednesday, well before midnight. So, Wednesday. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so, this is Mystery Murdery Thingy. Welcome. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Oh, we're supposed to do it. Are we supposed to? Uh, are we doing it at the same time? What's I going don't on know. here? I don't know. What's your name? We always do a Who different I? thing. I think <laughs> I think that's good. I don't know. Um, the podcast where we talk about mysteries, murderies, thingies, murderies, <laughs> murdery thingies, yeah. thingy murderies. I think we did a good job of like making it ambiguous enough where yeah. we can like fuck around and like, that's that's definitely the point that we can basically talk about anything mysterious. That's the goal. Yep. And we do. So who are you? Sorry, what? What? Huh? Who? I'm sorry. I'm sorry? <laughs> who, are, uh, who are you? What's your name? I don't remember. My name's Mario. What, what's, who am I? Your name's Chloe. Correct. <laughs> this is a really rambling introduction. <laughs> I care. I care not. Yeah. No, um, I think that's good. Yeah, so. Who's going to go first this week? I don't know. Is yours a mystery, a murdery, or a thingy? It's it's very murdery. Mine's a mystery thingy. Okay. Not mur- well, mine's murdery too. Yeah. But it's 
in based on a thingy. Okay, okay. Why don't you go first? Okay. So I am talking about this is actually not my biggest fear, but like you know how people have like a personal, like traumatic big fear? Sure. And then people have like a oh, I'm afraid of like we're both afraid of open water, like type right. fear. More like irrational fears. Yeah. Like phobias kind of. Yeah. So I've always been freaked out by Ouija boards. Sure. So I did my research on that's what I'm gonna talk about. Talk about Ouija boards and their weirdness. Cool. Um I they really, really freak me out. I've never touched one. I've seen one. I don't like them. Have you ever been in the room when someone else is using no, one? No, no. I refuse to use one. And so you wouldn't though, like that movie Ouija then? Hell no. <laughs> that, came, that came out not too long ago, right? Yeah. Did you like see the commercials for it? Yeah, and, like, and I would freak no, out. No, no, I can't. No, no, I think they're really scary. Yeah. And even though, I didn't know this about you before. Even <laughs> Actually. Even, I don't think maybe you had told me. I don't know. They real they're really scary. And uh-huh. so even though I kind of there's science on it and it's kind of debunked, mm-hmm. there's still something about them that I really truly believe, sure. even if it is the scientific thing. Mm-hmm. If there is some other world, it's a door. It's definitely a door. Right. Through right. our like stupidity. Right. So So this is kind of you facing that fear. And like yeah. digging into it to sort of demystify it for you, or or maybe I, maybe not, but at least look into it. I looked into it and turned it into more of a true crime adventure. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> true crime adventures. Great. <laughs> Mario and Chloe, true crime adventures. That'd be a whole other thing. Okay, so Ouija boards, Ouija boards. So Ouija I also board. wanted to. I think this these next couple episodes do like a little bit of like a mini series based on ghosts. Cool. And by the end of it, I think you and I should have a definitive answer on if ghosts are real or not. Let's look into it. Sure. I think do some half-assed internet research. Yeah. Find out. Yeah. Okay. I think they're real. Cool. I've always believed in ghosts. So you want to do like a three-parter on it? Sure, we'll figure it out. Yes. We're okay. developing these plans on the fly. <laughs> on the fly. <laughs> you should add that in there. What? Do you know what? Never mind. You're doing it right now. Yeah, that's... Uh, no, it's like a sound effect. You can add, but not me saying it. I thought it sounded good. Okay, we're talking about Ouija boards. Okay. Um, na na na. So they are also called talking boards or spirit boards. Um, So basically, if you don't know, I don't know who doesn't know what a Ouija board looks like, but if you don't, it's a basically a slab of, it's usually like wood or cardboard, but it's usually like wood. And um, it's about a size, I say the size, maybe like 13 by 11 inches, usually about the size of a game board. They can be a little smaller than that. And it has the alphabet in the middle, and it depends on which board you're using, but on the top it says yes, no, and on the bottom it says hello, goodbye. And then it comes with a little thing called a planchet, and the planchet is what you put your fingers on, and it like moves. So what you're supposed to do is put, everybody puts like a finger on the planchet, it's a little clear like glass thing, and you're supposed to ask it a question. Well, first you have to open it and you, by saying hello. 
and then you ask a question and then it's supposed to move by itself to the letters and spell out things and yeah. So historian Robert Murch looked into the history of the Ouija board beginning in 1992. It was just interesting because he's a historian who looked into it and it previously wasn't really something that people knew a lot about. People really didn't know where they came from. Hmm. So um, I looked at like talking boards and spirit boards are like something that's have uh, been in use since like the late 19th century and the Ouija board, which is like the same thing, but like commercialized Mm -hmm. um, was established in 1890. So after world war one, um, the idea of spirits and the dead became more popular sure. because everyone knew someone who died in the war and, you know, they wanted a way to communicate. Right. Spiritualism in general became like a huge, oh, huge yeah. thing. And, and with, within a high society too. Like of course. Ladies who had like shit tons of money who would pay for these fancy seances. There was even a president, I think it might have been like Harding's wife or Grover Cleveland's wife or someone um, who was like super into it and did seances in the White House? I remember hearing nope, about that. That's going to be a huge, <laughs> huge no from me. Right. No, anyway. thank you. Anyway, keep, keep the going White House talk. is so haunted. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Okay. There was, uh, like I said, uh, spiritualism really became a thing. Definitely. Um, so it, it was introduced commercially by. Um, a, a group of people. Uh, the main businessman and investor is named Elijah Bond, and this was introduced in July of 1890. Charles Kennard of Kennard Novelty Company is the dude who who had like the main idea, and he was the one who wanted to profit and commercialize off of okay. it. Um, so they got a patent. So this is kind of a funny story. When they went to go get a patent for their product, the chief. Uh, officer, the patent officer was like, "This isn't gonna like work. Like, show me, show me that it works." Right, right, right. And so, uh, what happened was that it like it spelled out um, his first name like on Ooh. there, but because the, they were only com- doing by like Mister Bob Lines, right, like, right, his right. He's like the. So, yeah, so that it worked that way, and they got their patent. Yay, it worked. Okay. Um. So when it comes to the name Ouija, the board named itself. Hmm. Yeah. Um, some people think it's a combo of the French word we for yes and the German ja, Ouija, Ouija, like Oh, okay. Ouija. Right, right. Um, but that's also something that a later owner made up. That story about it? Yeah, it's not okay. true. Um, so what happened was Elijah Bond, he gave the board to his sister-in-law named Helen Peters. Um, she was also a medium. And so she puts her hands on it and she's like, what should we call you? And it did Ouija. That's what it spelled out. Hmm. And then she asked it, what does that mean? And it said, good luck. <laughs> so what was also interesting was that she was wearing a locket with a woman named Ouija. Uh, like on it but it's very possible that the woman in the locket was famous author and popular women's rights activist Weida O-U-I-D-D-A instead of O-U-I-J-A whom 
Helen sure. Peters would admire and she'd yeah, love I mean, it. Maybe when you're talking across the bounds between this world and the next, something gets lost in trail. A, a D becomes a J. It's possible. Who knows? Man. I mean, within the realm of what we're talking about, it makes perfect sense to me. So, so that's how it was named. Sure. Um, I'm not really sure why it's Ouija instead of Ouija. Or yeah. Ouija. I'm almost positive hmm. it's Ouija, right? Oh, definitely. It's I've ne- I've never heard anyone pronounce it other than Ouija board. Yeah. You know, although I'm I'm not actually now that I think of it entirely sure how it is spelled. Like it's O U I G A. O U I G A. Yes. Yeah, or no, J A. J A, of course. J A. O U I J A. Right, right, right. Yeah, that is weird. And the women's rights activist was O U I D A. Right, weird. So, might have mm-hmm. been misread or something. Okay. So, the product was extremely popular. By 1892, the Kennard uh, Novelty Company went from one factory in Baltimore to two, and then two in New York, and then two in Chicago, and then one in London. So, these were making Ouija boards mm. um, and, and other, you know, novelty right, things. Right, right. Um, in 1893, uh, Kennard and Bond no longer ran the company. A man named William Fould, who was an employee and a stockholder, uh, just, like, worked his way up, and they retired. Um, what's funny though is that there's a lot of people who during this time were trying to take credit for it and name it after themselves and Mm -hmm. saying I was the inventor but Fold never did this he never claimed to be the inventor Um, though his obituary the New York Times declared him to be and also, he died in 1927. Okay, so he died in 1927 after a freak accident. From He fell from the roof. He was on a ladder, and he fell from the roof of the factory and died. Oh, my God. This was um, a couple of weeks after the Ouija board told him to build a factory. Whoa. Yeah. Killed by the Ouija board. This... Whatever spirit or whatever that seems to occupy the Ouija board, it's it seems very like impish, like a like a trickster. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what it seems like. It freaks me out. Yeah. So, like I said, there was lots of arguing over who wanted to take the name, um, but on the other hand, Helen Peters, she was like, I don't want to be a part of this. She was the medium who. Sure. She's like, I don't want anything to do with this. Um, because she says it caused serious damage to her family. So when some Civil War family heirlooms went missing from their home, she asked the Ouija board who took them. According to her grandson, the board indicated a member of the family. So half the family believed it, half the other family thought it was bullshit. And so did Helen. Helen was like, this is bullshit. Um, she was the one actually doing it, and she didn't even think that it was real. Yeah, so she, uh, the conflict was never really solved, and it tore the family apart. Mm-hmm. Um, after the fight... Again, just making shit, being a fucking troll. I know. After the fight, she sold all of her stock in the company, and, uh, quote, until her dying day, she's telling everyone, don't play the Ouija board because it lies. Mm. Merch. That's what Robert Merch, the historian, said. Interesting. About her. 
Because it lies. Ooh. Right. Ooh, don't listen to the Ouija board. Don't fucking listen to the fucking Ouija board. No, stay no. away. Always say goodbye. Always close that door. Because if you leave it open, you are screwed. Sure. Who knows what's coming through that door. Right. Anyway. So, the reason it was so popular, again, was because people needed something to believe in. Um, it was a time when people were more vulnerable. And by 1967, um, Ouija boards outsold Monopoly. Really? Yeah. That's interesting that it kept growing over those, like, 40 years or so. It's, the Ouija board's popularity tends to have a fluctuates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to talk about some murders. Okay. That have to do with Ouija boards. Sure, sure, sure. I found like four or five really, really good ones, but hmm. I picked two. I okay. want, there was a third one that I really, really wanted to do, but yeah. I was, I think it would take too much time. <laughs> okay. So this is the murder of Clotilde. Almost positive that's how you say her name. So, okay. fall of 1929, on the Cataragus Reservation near Buffalo, New York, Indian Reservation, 66-year-old traditional tribal, tribal healer Nancy Brown and 36-year-old school teacher uh, Lila Jimerson sit down, have a seance with their Ouija board. So... What they wanted to know what happened to Nancy Bowen. She's a 66-year-old. Um, they wanted ha- they wanted to know what happened to her husband, who died under like strange circumstances. So apparently, allegedly, the board put them in contact with the husband, whose name was get this, Sassafras Charlie. Ooh. Who claimed? I want to hang out with that guy. I know. He cl- he claimed that he had been murdered by a woman named Clotilde, mm-hmm. who. Lila Jamerson was familiar with. So apparently it gave a physical description and a home address. So after this, I know, right? After this seance, Nancy Bowen got mysterious letters from someone named, quote, Mrs. Dooley, who claimed to know what actually happened to Charlie. So she got these weird letters. They spoke of witchcraft, hexes, black magic, and murder, and all that kind of stuff. She, the letter said that Clotilda was a witch and that she's killed before, and that uh, Clotilda was also someone who would collect mushrooms in the forest. But this was something that was common in Europe, at the time, but to Native Americans, it was weird to them. They thought it was like, they're like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. They didn't understand it. It was strange. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what could she possibly be doing with those type thing? Mm-hmm. So, after she's got these, she the Ouija board tells her about Clotilda. These weird letters tell her about Clotilda. This crazy bitch takes action. She gets a hammer, gets some chloroform. Smashes her head in with a hammer. Smashes Clotilda's head. Clotilda's head in with a hammer and shoves chloroform, a chloroform-soaked rag down her throat. Oh, my God. So the Ouija board drove her to kill. Yes. Wow. The body was found by Clotilda's 12-year-old son. Oh, Jesus. Witnesses saw two Native American women standing around. One of them was older and one of them was younger, just like Liza or Lisa and um, Clotilda. And not Clotilde, Nancy. Um, Lila, I feel like I say it different every time. Lila, I don't know. <laughs> Lila, 
Lila, I'm going to pick Lila. Lila Jimerson's connection to Clotilda was the fact that she was having an affair, having an affair with her husband oh. named Henry Marchand. There's a lot of uh, ins and outs and connections yeah. in this little, it's pretty crazy. So the media angled it, this whole story around magic, around witchcraft. Sure. They called Nancy the Hex Woman. Um, these were two um, Native American women, so it was laced with ethnic slurs and racism. It was not good for the Iroquois people. Sure. Um, cops performed illegal raids and searches of the reservation. They went through people's personal sure. property. Collective looking for, punishment. Looking for clues. Yep. Crazy shit. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit in mine too. Actually, it's crazy how it comes it, up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's pretty much a universal thing of uh, security forces going to excess at times. Oh god. Yeah. So during the trial, Nancy Bowen claimed that she had been compelled by supernatural forces, and tr- and sh- she tried to use black magic before to kill Clotilda, Ooh. but when that didn't work, she took it upon herself. Marchand uh, came clean about his affair, and he admitted that he had um, actual several relations with multiple Native women. Jesus. Yes. Uh, as for Leela, Jimerson's, uh, Leela Jimerson's, her lawyer tried to present her involvement with the crime as, like, she was a victim, and this right. was all, like, a crime of passion. Um, it was declared a mistrial after Leela collapsed in the courtroom because she had been suffering from a respiratory condition related to tuberculosis. Hmm. In the second trial, which was a year later, uh, Jimerson was acquitted, and Bowen was found guilty of manslaughter, and Marchand wasn't accused of any crimes because he was just kind of... Right. Yeah. Being a hound dog's not technically a a crime, you know? (laughs) So that's the first one. That's the first story. Interesting. The second story takes place much later. The most recent one I found was 2001. Hmm. But this one is from, is from 1995. takes place in South London, England. Uh, David McCallum, 19, and Pierre Antoine, 16, are just two um, kids who are their friends. They have dabbled in Satanism and black magic. Uh, they had a shrine. Uh, Mac- David McCallum had a shrine in his room. Um, he lived. He lived in a South London apartment. In his room, there was like a shrine to like Satan and um, all kinds of creepy. Right, as Henry stuff. Zabrowski would say, "Hail Satan." Uh, hail Satan. Cool. <laughs> I guess hail whoever you want. Um, so. December 2nd, 1995, the two boys decided to invite over their neighbors, Michael Eridge and Stephen Curran, both were 15, so they could have a Ouija board session. And that doesn't seem a little weird. Right? (laughs) Sure, go hang out with those slightly older boys so you can go have a Ouija board session. Let's conjure up some spirits. Yeah. Shits and giggles. Right. The board spelled out kill. And that spooked uh, Michael Eridge. He's one of the younger ones. He was like, I'm out, I'm out. He he decided to go home. Get out! But before he could go home... (laughs) But before he could go home... Sorry. Antoine then allegedly forcefully stopped him from going. And after an altercation struck him in the head, (sighs) 
That was when McCallum suddenly produced an 11-inch long hunting knife and proceeded to viciously stab Eridge 11 times in the head, neck, and chest. What? Curran, the other boy, was then forced to put his fingerprints on the knife, and he was released on the condition that he not tell anyone or he's going to be blamed for the murder because now his fingerprints are Wow. Yeah. That... This one is much more messed up. That went and south way, really quickly. And way, um, nothing we, to do with the Ouija board, really. Right. Like, that was, like, some bullshit excuse. I was going to say. So obviously. It seems like that was probably the plan The first one was more beginning. mysterious. This one's yeah. so premeditated. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. The body was wrapped in bedding and then uh, stashed between the seventh and eighth floors of the apartment building. Wow. Um... Eventually, Curran, Stephen Curran, of course, uh, uh, told the cops, told McCallum's father about what happened. Um, he, McCallum, ended up confessing to the killings. He blamed the Ouija board, and he said that demons forced him to do it. Um, he was, eval- in court, he was evaluated by a psychiatrist, um, this psychiatrist testified that McCallum was suffering from severe schizophrenia and could not be responsible for his actions. He escaped prison uh, and instead got life in Broadmoor Mental Hospital. Mm. So the last thing I want to talk about is the scientific aspect of the Ouija board and the thing that kind of debunks it. Sure. But I still, I still believe. Okay. I still believe. Okay. So... It's called the idiomotor effect. Unconscious, involuntary physical movement. That's what it is. It's moving when you're not trying to move. An example sure. is the hypnic jerk, which when you suddenly jerk awake from sleep. Right. Except it's, it's um, that's more abrupt. And this happens when you're awake. Um, your brain is signaling your body to move without, without your conscious awareness. Right, right. Um, because it happens when you're awake, the movements are smaller. So there have been studies on this um, with on the idiomotor effect with Ouija boards. And so one of the things was they, they blindfolded participants mm-hmm. and told them to do it and ask the questions. And they basically spelled out, usually, usually spelled out something incoherent. And yeah. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not legible. Because they couldn't see what they were doing. Exactly. Essentially. Yeah. So the effect is maximized if you believe you have no control over your movement. So the more you believe it, the more it's Which is interesting happen. because it's sort of signaling to your subconscious that your conscious doesn't want to be aware of the motions. So maybe that in some way like encourages the subconscious to increase them or something. The less control you think you have, the more control your subconscious has. Right, right. That's very interesting. So this actually, in conclusion... Um, which this is a really good point, it makes the Ouija board a really good tool for tapping into your own subconscious. Oh, yeah. Right? That's true. Yeah, definitely. You could definitely it's sort of a form of like automatic writing. You can definitely do some studying into yourself. Right. Um, but that's all I have on the magic of the Ouija mm-hmm. board. Well, that was really interesting. I have read some like legit scary-ass stories. Mm-hmm. That I don't, I want to stay away from. I can honestly say that almost everything that you talked about, I did not know before about the Ouija board. Okay, all right. So I think that's pretty good. I learned a lot about good. it, too, yeah. Yeah. So I got my sources from Smithsonian Magazine. 
article by Linda Rodriguez, Nick Ribbon, MysteriousUniverse.org, uh, article by Brent Swanser, and a Vox article by Aja Romano. Cuckoo. Key. That's key. Screw you guys. I'm going him. That was pretty good. Was it? Yeah. Oh, you meant you. No, or you meant my impression both. of Carmen? Both. They were both pretty good. I don't know. I'll work on it. Um, I'm going to get some more water and let's take a little break. Okay. Okay. All um, right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> okay, this is it's very sad. <laughs> Wait till stop laughing. Okay. 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 Bring it down. Okay, bring in, bring in the mood down with the murder. That's not good. I shouldn't say that. Anyway, I'm going to talk about the 1920 Wall Street bombing, which I had never heard of before. And I was, when I looked into it, really surprised that I... I've never heard of it before either. Yeah. And we'll kind of get into that too. It's kind of part of the story of why and how um, it kind of got lost in history in a sense. But to kind of set the scene for what happened on that day. So this was just before noon on September 16th, 1920, on the corner of Wall and Broad Street in Manhattan. So really busy corner of downtown New York. Large lunchtime crowd was milling around, consisting mostly of messengers, stenographers, clerks, brokers, mostly in their... 20s to 30s, just kind of regular people going to get lunch. There was a lady who was, like, helping her friend find a new job. Mm-hmm. You know, just different people on their way around. A junkie-looking horse carriage uh, slowly is rolling down the street and asks a uh, cart, like a seller, I think he was like a chocolate seller on the street, to like move his cart out of the way so that he can park his carriage right next to the J.P. Morgan building. And even in 1920, horse-drawn carriages weren't really that uncommon, so no one really thought that much of it. The driver gets out, scurries away, and as the bells are ringing noon... The carriage filled with 100 pounds of TNT and 500 pounds of heavy iron shrapnel explodes. Yeah. The explosion is heard throughout the island of Manhattan and in Brooklyn. The shockwave knocks down dozens of people, injures hundreds, including the father of John Kennedy and the grandson of Ulysses S. Grant, oh my God. who worked in the sub-treasury building across the street from the J.P. Morgan building. The shockwave shook buildings three blocks around, blew out windows up to the ninth floor of the surrounding buildings, derailed a streetcar two blocks away, and debris flung as high as the 34th building of a nearby of a nearby building. I like can't. Yeah. It's, it's almost an unfathomable, you know, kind of really the kind of thing that you would only see in a wartime setting. And a lot of world war one veterans were there and said that it was very reminiscent of what they had seen in war. So 
in um, you know to 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 kind of make the point, the debris was littered everywhere, both within and without the buildings around, including the very unfortunate horse, of course, who oh, no. was ob- obviously blown apart and whose limbs were found hundreds of yards apart from one another. Oh my god! Yeah, that's just gruesome. I know. I said it was going to be very murdery. Now, one strange thing is that a statue of George Washington, a bronze statue of George Washington, which was on the steps of the building across the street, that sub-treasury building, was miraculously unharmed. No damage whatsoever. And people at the time, you know, took that as a good sign, kind of a good omen. All in all, there was $2 million in uh, $1920 in property damage. Yeah. And the damage to the facade of the J.P. Morgan building is still visible today. It was not repaired at all. And there was a picture, I think it was um, on the, the uh, Slate article I was reading, some, some pieces are like as big as a person's hand that came off the side of the, of the building. 2,000 policemen, army um, members to guard the sub-treasury building and Red Cross nurses, plus, of course, a huge crowd of onlookers immediately descended on the scene. 30 people were killed instantly. And during the carnage, a 17-year-old messenger named James Saul commandeered a car and took 30 people to the hospital. Wow. So there were people, you know, at the scene actively, you know, just yeah. like on 9-11 or anytime something like this happens, who step up and, you know, try to help as much as they can. Eight people died later at the hospital of their wounds. Some were wounded or killed by falling debris within the buildings as well. Oh, God. Oh, God. Including a uh, 24-year-old clerk named William Joyce who was killed by falling debris. And uh, his dad actually worked in the building there as well and, like, refused to get help for himself because he was so grief-stricken. Yeah, like I said, it's really sad. (laughs) Um, Another man was so, you know, shaken and impacted by surviving the bombing that he actually jumped off a 10-story building in which he worked after his coworkers suggested that he just, you know, go home early. So that was kind of the last victim, in a sense, of the bombing. So he just kind of went crazy? Well, I wouldn't say I he went, he went I crazy. I don't understand he, why he would do that. You know, it, it, I think sometimes when one survives a really horrible event, I've, I've heard, it's like something that I've heard of, there's a certain amount of, Guilt that's associated with that. You know, why did I live and all these other people died? And maybe that was part of it, you know, because you, you feel, or you feel like, oh, I, maybe I should have died. And you, you get fixated on that. I mean, I've definitely heard of things like that happening before, but in, in some sense, it seems to have driven him to suicide. So he was kind of the last one that was, was killed by it, but it's fair. It's all very, very tragic. So it, was the worst terrorist attack on U.S. soil until the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, some 70, 75 years later, 74 years later. Like I said before, World War I veterans, many of whom were there, described it as akin to a battleground, and some actually thought that a bomb had dropped from a plane, and that's really the only way that this could have happened. But unfortunately that, well, not unfortunately, 
wouldn't have mattered how it happened ultimately, but that wasn't the case. The New York Stock Exchange, which was just down the block, suspended trading for that day, and the Treasury building across the street closed for the day. But both of those and the J.P. Morgan building reopened the next day. Money, 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 money. Maybe that was part of it, but people also wanted to get back to work to kind of reestablish a sense of normalcy. Yeah, you know, that get sense. that 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 sense that you know we're we're not going to be beaten by this. And I think that's something you see in a lot of terrorist incidents. You know that. Um, reaction, you know, where we're not going to let them win, and therefore we're just going to get back to normal. Unfortunately, that also made the investigators' jobs more difficult because, you know, people everywhere, people, you know, that day and into that night, sweeping the debris away um, and hosing down the streets, clearing out the buildings. So a lot of the evidence was not preserved well. But they were able to find some things out um, that that sort of um, were, were some initial leads, but as we'll see, it, it ultimately probably hurt the investigation. And the next day, some people were actually attending a previously scheduled parade, which was celebrating the adoption of the of the Constitution, like the anniversary of the adoption of the Constitution, just on the next block which was kind of a, a funny coincidence. And they, in a you know, crowd that was there, um, you know, because of the, the terrorist incident, obviously, as well, sung patriotic songs, listened to patriotic oh. speeches on the steps where George Washington was first uh, sworn in. And although the J.P. Morgan building and the capitalist system in general seemed to have been the target, that's the ostensible target, but... Oh, because it was Wall Street. Because, yeah, it happened on Wall and Broad Street, you know, right in front of, you know, at the the intersection of the financial system, both public and private. Yeah. Where you have a treasury building, you have the J.P. Morgan Chase building, or the J.P. Morgan building, rather. And um, J.P. Morgan also had been accused uh, of profiteering off of World War One. And of kind of getting rich while a lot of other people, you know, were making a lot of sacrifices during World War One. And there was this kind of growing divide um, between the the haves and the have nots that would kind of also be exhibited through the the roaring 20s, you know, when some people were doing really well. And then, of course, the stock. Anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. Blah, 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 blah. But while many assassination attempts were made directly on those wealthy bankers and so Mm -hmm. forth, including J.P. Morgan himself, J.P. Morgan Jr. himself, this attack, as we said initially, targeted the regular workers. It was done in a crowd of people when you at directly at lunchtime, literally during the strikes of noon, when he or whomever did this would have known that those people would have been the people out there who would have been targeted. Who would have been those I forgot victims. that our our podcast is mystery based, so I was like really hoping to find out who did it. And I'm like, well, the reason you're doing it is because we don't know. <laughs> right, that's kind of always the point, right? There, there's a, a man who is strongly implicated. We'll get into it. We'll we'll get into all all of that stuff toward the end. But the so the police suspect that anti-capitalist anarchists or what they initially thought was more communist groups were behind the attack. Of course, they were thinking that. Yeah, because yeah. you know, 1917, the Russian Revolution had just happened. 
Um, yeah. You know, it, there was a lot of, this was kind of the beginnings of the Red Scare, so to speak. So this terrorist attack was also preceded by a, a long campaign of bombings, which I, again, had never heard of, which targeted um, those acting out against those anarchists. 1919, there were bombings all over the United States that what? were perpetrated by Italian anarchists, basically Italian terrorists. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I'd never heard about that. Um there was also a flyer or a, kind of a stack of flyers that was found in a nearby mailbox after the Wall Street bombing, which read, quote, Remember, we will not tolerate any longer. Free the political prisoners or it will be sure death for all of you, American anarchist fighters, close quote. So, and that sign off American anarchist fighters is also something they had seen before. So it seems to have been kind of a calling card. Um, for these Italian uh, anarchist terrorists. And the um, the political prisoners that they were talking about may have been referring also in part to the alleged Italian terrorists Sacco and Vanzetti, which were like a huge, huge uh, international story at the time. So were they like in jail? They were in jail for these kinds of crimes. So they were maybe maybe, call, maybe calling for their freedom or something? Right, and Secco and Vanzetti may have been innocent. Like all of the kind of investigations and things into theirs, that's actually a, would be a, another good one to do. Like uh-huh. were Secco and Vanzetti guilty or innocent? It's not entirely clear. It's never really been entirely clear. But anyway, the, polo- the police home in on one of these Italian uh, anarchist groups called the Gallianists, uh, led by a radical named Luigi Galliani, who was a, an Italian... Gallianiists. Uh, yeah, Gallianiists. Or, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how to say that, but yeah, Galliani. they were uh, led by Luigi Galliani. And Galliani was deported in 1919, but this very much, this Wall Street bombing very much matched his modus operandi. This was the kind of thing that he would have done because he had done it in other places in the United States. However, the police were not able to follow really any trail and the flyers were the only hard evidence they really ever found for the Gallianist Italian anarchist theory, just because there, there was such a dearth of evidence. They never really found much of anything other than being able to reconstruct what the bomb was made out of um, and that the horse had been newly um, shooed, but they talked to like every horseshoer in like New York and no one knew anything. So it, the, the investigation just, you know, basically went on for 20 years. They did keep it open for a long time. Wow. The FBI and the secret service interrogated thousands of people, mostly communists, radicals, anarchists, and those, you know, suspected of being in those groups. But the investigation was officially closed in 1944 and no charges were ever filed. Wow. Yeah. So there was no justice. That's so crazy. For any of these people. Yeah. So one kind of aside uh, and lead that really went nowhere but seemed to have been something when it first came up was a tennis champion named um, 
I found Edward or Edwin. I guess Edwin is Edwin like a nickname for Edward. I don't think so. Okay, I don't. I thought know. they were two separate names. That's what I thought. So either Edward or Edwin Fisher. Ed. Ed Fisher, who had warned friends and anyone who would listen to him that there would be an explosion on Wall Street in mid-September. And let's remember this happened September 16th. Oh, my God. So when the police heard about that, you know, from tips and his, like, people that he had told this, they were like, hey, look at this guy. He was telling me this would happen. They look into it, and unfortunately, Mr. Fisher just seems to have been mentally unstable. Um he had made these kinds of assertions. But he knew. But he had made these kinds of assertions many times in the past, uh, and they had not come to, to pass. And he also had a history of mental illness. And when he was asked about it, he said that he made these predictions because they came to him through God and the air. So, oh. yeah, he, he was eventually cleared and recommitted to Amityville Asylum. <gasps> He was also in Canada when this happened. So he had a pretty good alibi as well. So let's get into some of the more or less plausible suspects that did arise, however. There was an Italian national named Pietro Angelo, who was a radical, but he did have an alibi uh, for the bombing. He was still deported, however. And like I said, initially they were looking really closely at the Soviets, like the Soviet government directly, or the Communist Party USA, but those were really fully explored and were dismissed by the end of the by in, by 1944. They said that was not the case; that they weren't behind it. The most plausible suspect was a man named Mario Buda. No relation. Who was an Italian... <laughs> it's the second time that's happened. <laughs> I know. I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, who was an Italian anarchist, uh, and he was a terrorist, a, a kind of a known bomber who would have been... How was he, like, around? <laughs> I know, a known right? bomber, like... Yeah, and, and he was known to have made bombs of this particular kind as well. He was a Gallianist, and he was an associate as well of Sacco and Vanzetti. So mm-hmm. he would have had that connection too. He was also later arrested for robbery and murder. So oh, he, he is a convicted murderer. He, uh, the um, motive, the purported motive, would have been the revenge for the arrest of Sacco and Vanzetti and other Gallianists at the time. Buddha was also implicated by his nephew, Frank Maffi, many, many years later, and also Charles Poggi, another Gallianist, as the maker of the bomb and also the driver, who was <gasps> never found. <gasps> they never found the driver? They never found the driver. People gave descriptions of them of him, rather, but they never found out who the driver was. <sighs> but it may have been Buddha himself. And I just want to read also, I found this on the one of the Wikipedia pages, a quote from a book by the historian Paul Averich called Anarchist Voices Interview of Charles Pogge. And th- this is kind of where that claim is coming from. So this is Pogge talking, quote, Buddha was a real militant, capable of anything. In 1933, I drove to New York with Buddha's nephew, Frank Maffi. Frank said, let's drive downtown and see my uncle's bomb. And he took me to Wall Street, where the big explosion took place in September 1920, just before Buddha sailed for Italy. You could still see the holes in the Morgan building across the street. Close quote. So, pretty direct. 
pretty and this guy who is this guy? Charles Pogge. He was another Gallianist around at the time. So And he, he was interviewed? He was interviewed that's by what he said? right. He was interviewed by the historian Paul Averich, and that's what he told him. Wow. So that's fairly I mean, obviously it's hearsay or what he said about what Mafi said was hearsay, but it, I mean, what reason would he have to lie, right? Yeah. That's, I guess, what you have to come back to. And like I said earlier, Buddha was also known to make this particular kind of bomb and was implicated in other large bombings in the U.S. at the time. Sounds like... Not a good dude. Yeah. Bad dude, definitely. He sounds pretty guilty. He sounds like a bad hombre. Strangely, Buddha, who was in New York City at the time of the bombing was never questioned by police and left for Italy shortly after the bombing happened. So, yeah, <sighs> not great. Not a great. Yeah, I know. Is that Jesus done Christ. any way they would have deported him? I'm assuming because there would have there wouldn't really have been, you know, hard physical evidence to tie him to it, but I don't know. And no memorial was ever erected for the incident. Mm. And in fact, it's sort of a strange, and I I watched the American Experience PBS documentary about it, and historians talk about how it's weird how it was just kind of like swept under the rug, and people just kind of moved on. I wonder why. I don't know. You know, I think it... Maybe this goes deeper than we think it does. Yeah. I'm not totally sure, but the... It, this incident does, I think, though, have some interesting kind of, well, like you're saying, we can go deeper, right? I think we can see this in a larger context now that we kind of know about it. I mean, it's such a major, you know, it's like one of the major terrorist incidents ever in the United States. And I think it maybe can be seen as a presage of our kind of modern period of terrorism that obviously started with 2001. Which also didn't really start with 2001 either. That's kind of a fallacy, right? Because we had the Oklahoma City bombing. We had the first World Trade Center bombing. But I suppose in everybody's mind in this era. Yeah, exactly. But it also kind of presages the buildup of the modern, like, surveillance state. Um, Future FBI head J. Edgar Hoover was working on this case um, and others like it developed a tracking system for all radicals in the U.S. and organized raids on anyone suspected of being a radical. So, yeah, this was... Crackdown. Yeah, big, big, big crackdown. Really, as one of the historians in the American Experience documentary said, pretty much unprecedented in terms of its reach all across the United States, monitoring however many thousands and thousands of people. Um, And this kind of figures in that whole debate of, you know, are these kinds of incidents, should they be treated simply as a legal matter where you go after the perpetrators, you hold them to justice, you put them in jail, meet out their, their punishment, right? Or should it be seen as a wider national security threat where a sort of more robust response from the federal government is warranted? That is a good question. Right, and not really an answerable question, but yeah. it's, it's this constant debate, and it really goes, and they were talking about this in those kinds of terms even back then in the 20s as well. 
and many American citizens not connected to terrorism, it should be noted, were swept up in this kind of stuff. Um, and, and especially in an incident that's known as the Palmer Raids, which um, swept up a lot of people who were not connected to anything, but were just Italian, you know, or whatever, you know, that we didn't want them here because they're foreigners, which is not not good, by the way. I don't know if oh, may, maybe really? maybe that's not clear. I don't know. Like, it's oh, I don't I know. Just, I, oh, uh. Because we're doing that same kind of stuff now is why I'm saying that. Yeah. And sometimes these people were held in really bad conditions and then simply deported. So, you know, this kind of starts that whole Red Scare idea that culminates in McCarthyism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we could, we could get into a whole diatribe about American history, but I think I'm pretty much done. I think I've probably rambled on enough. <laughs> That's good. It's that re- is really interesting so one, right? bizarre, and I'm like, I can't believe that I've never heard of it. Right? That it's not something that we study or look at Yeah. in, like, history class. I mean, I took AP U.S. history... I don't remember. Maybe we learned about this, but I don't remember it. I feel like you'd remember. Right? Because it's, you know, almost, you know, 40 people killed in a bombing on Wall Street. I mean, Jesus, how much more, like, sensational could that be? Imagine that happening right now. It would be huge. It would be the biggest story for a year or more. Yeah. And, but I don't know. You know, maybe it it says something about those people at that time, I guess, which is hard to know without a lot of context. But I don't know. A hundred years ago, we still had terrorism. (laughs) We still had a lot of the bad things that are still around today. I don't know. Anyway, what's up? Segway. Segway, 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 segway. Oh, we're doing weird shit in the news, right? Um, Or are we? Oh, I had something. Okay. I don't, I, want, don't, I don't have anything. Okay. We were going to talk about the Austin City bombings, but it's hopefully it's over now. The guy blew himself up, Mark Condit. If you hadn't heard, I'm sure people have. Hopefully it's over now, and nothing like that will ever happen again. Because, my God, that was terrible. Too much. Way too much. Too much. But I found this, and I'll do my sources too right now. I found this incident because of a story I read that had to do with the Austin City bombings, um, noting that a century before the Austin City bombings, there were these kinds of serial bombers, and the investigations were very difficult. Um, but I guess nowadays it's easier to track people. <laughs> That's the difference. Oh, sure. So we, we actually find the people who did it. Um, so my source is uh, Wikipedia. The Woo-woo! <laughs> yeah, woo-woo for Wikipedia. Always. Always. <laughs> yes, yes. Wall, the Wall Street bombing page and also the Sacco and Vanzetti page. Um, uh, Evan Andrews at History.com. Maria Kiriakova at Britannica.com. Ella Morton at Slate. Gilbert King at Smithsonian. Ooh. Teresa Vargas at the Washington Post, which was that article that I was talking about. And then the bombing of Wall Street, uh, PBS American Experience documentary. Ooh, you did a lot more poking around than I did. I, well, I found one, like, really good article. Sometimes that's how it happens. Like, a couple, like, really good Yeah, ones. this one kind of, I needed to look more. Oh, and I, oh, shoot, I don't think I included it here. There was also a um, good, like, academic paper that I read about this uh, incident. Um, 
I'll I'll mention it ne- the name of the author next time because I don't remember it, but it was out of um, Sam Houston State University, I think. So anyway, uh, lots of What's different your, sources. Uh, weird shit in the news. Yeah. You're supposed to say it with me. Sorry. Let's do it again. What's my weird, what, weird shit, shit in, in the, the news? news. <laughs> you almost messed it up again. No. Go for it. Go. I'll get better. I'll do better. Do anyway, better. I don't have it up right now, but I just saw it a little while ago. Um, it was an incident that happened like uh, a few months ago, I think. Mm-hmm. There was this um, airline pilot who was flying over Arizona and he saw this weird object kind of going past him in the opposite direction, about two to 3,000 feet above him. Oh, boy. And he was like, what the hell is that? Oh, so boy. So he calls in, you know, to the air traffic control center, says, hey, like, is there somebody going over me at two to 3,000 feet, like, 15 minutes ago? And they're like, no. What are you talking about? Um and they tell this other pilot who's like, they think if it's on the same trajectory, it's going to be going past him in the next five minutes or so. They're like, the air traffic controller calls that pilot and it's like, hey, can you just be like on the lookout for something going above you at about 2,000, 3,000 feet above you, like in the next five minutes? And the guy's like, okay, not the normal thing that you get a call about, I guess, when you're flying a plane. <laughs> anyway, he sees it go past him. What? Just when they thought it was going to. Nothing shows up on radar. They keep track of weather balloons and all that kinds of stuff. It's not that. They don't know what it is. No one knows. Weird. Weird, right? It's weird. It was weird, right? I got it. I got it right. I did the right thing. Yay! (laughs) I also have a good shit in the news. I almost forgot about it. Thank you for having, for covering for me, because I I don't have it. You're good. You're a good girl. Um... (laughs) White Sox rehire wrongly convicted man. Uh, just a, it's just a little blurb about a guy who Ooh, spent, and it involves the socks, which I know you like, so I wanted to do it. I don't. My family does. Your family does. But after spending 23 years in prison, this wow. man named Neveris Coleman, who did not commit the crime he was convicted of, is now back at work as a groundskeeper with the Chicago White Sox. So good on him. And good on the socks. <laughs> and good job by you. Good job by you! Mario. You. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening. We didn't say... Sorry. It's a, it's important. It's very important. Rate, comment, yes. like, subscribe. Do all those things. Tell all your friends. Mystery murdery thingy. It's a podcast. <laughs> it's about mysteries. <laughs> Murderies and thingies. Yeah. Sometimes it's, yeah, pretty interesting. No, usually. It's always. It's always. That's. See, that's how, what do you got to do? You got to hype yourself up like that. Yeah. 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 That's right. We're like. That's right. We're like the best podcast that people who. We're like the hipster podcast. Like lo-fi is our thing. That's right. We were going to own that. We are going to own it. We're in a basement on an iPhone. But you know what? That's mysterious. That's right. From an undisclosed location deep in the heart of America. It's time to cut this off. Coming to you live. Not live. Recorded live. <laughs> Not recorded live. I edit If this. you uh, stay tuned within the next couple of weeks. How much of this should uh, I keep? I don't, I don't care. <laughs> we're still less than an hour. What were you going to say? Well, I'm saying if you uh, keep tuning in 
in the next couple of weeks, you can hit us up at Theater Ted. Yes. We are trying to just show up. That sort of discloses our location, but yeah, we were going to say that. Yeah, if you're listening in the Bloomington normal area, we will be at Theater of Ted in two weeks. Illinois State University. We'll talk about it more later. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay bye. Bye.